Thank you for tuning in to a sermon from Redemption Hill Church. I'm so glad that you've joined us. It's our prayer that this will lift your heart and encourage you, set your eyes more fully on Jesus as we open God's word together. You can join us anytime in person or online in our live stream. You can find that at redemptionhilldc.org. If you're not in D.C., we encourage you to get involved in a local church where you live for the sake of encouragement and accountability in a local body, but we're also glad to have you join us and, and walk through this study with us. If you'd like to support the ministries of Redemption Hill, you can do so at our website, again, redemptionhilldc.org. Well, Father, as we come to this place today, we come with the heaviness of the week, we come, though, with the excitement and the joy of being together. I'm grateful for the, the, to hear the voices of your people, greeting each other, being together, enjoying each other's company. Um, and we, we come together because we get the reminder every Sunday that we have hope in Christ, that we can expect the world around us to continue to fall apart, but that there's hope in something greater and something lasting. In a, in a kingdom that will never fade away. And so, Father, as we come to you today, we, we ask that you'd work in our hearts. We lift this time to you and, and pray that you would continue to speak to us. We pray that you would guide us and direct us as individuals and as a church. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. Amen. Well, Redemption Hill, we are continuing a series that we have called Dwell, an Enduring and Faithful Presence, as we're looking ahead at the future of Redemption Hill, trying to look on a longer scale, a bigger picture of where God is leading us and guiding us. And so today is week four out of six in that series. Um, we had Dwell books, and uh, I've been informed that they are all taken at this point, which is great. That's good news. Um, we also have a QR code that we can put up. So if you'd like a digital version, you can use that right now. It should work. Um, you can pull your phone out, and that'll pull up a digital version of the series booklet that we have been walking through. And so as we look at this series and, th and look at the, the future of our church, we've walked, uh, we've walked through a number of things. We walked through, first off, first of all, the first week in, in looking at the idea of God's calling on us to dwell as a, an, an enduring and faithful presence in this place. And now we've looked at... It's something we haven't done a lot of teaching on at Redemption Hill, and that is, is understanding how we are to give ourselves first to the Lord. And in that, that includes our time, our talents, and our treasure, but looking particularly at what it looks like to give to God. As so we looked at giving ourselves first to the Lord, and last week we looked at, at giving in God's way, and this week we continue in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 1 to 10. If you have a Bible, you can open it up there with me. If not, it's also printed in the Dwell books if you brought your book with you today, um, and the verses will be on the screen. As we get into this, though, before we get into 2 Corinthians 9, as I was looking at this today, and it, I was really struck by a parable that Jesus told, and, and this is really, I think, gets to the heart of, of what, something I want us to consider today. And so in Luke chapter 12, Jesus was interacting with Pharisees and lawyers, and, and, and so he, and in that, he, he had someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. And so, and so Jesus said, all right. Um, whatever's going on in your family, he said, I'm going to take this opportunity to talk to you and, and tell you this parable. 
He said, take care and be on guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, the land of a man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do, for I have nowhere to store my crops? And he said, I'll do this. I'll tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and all my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Jesus doesn't mince words with that one, right? Some of his parables are, are kind of tough to interpret, and we have to try to understand them. This one seems pretty clear. And so as he has somebody coming and concerned about a family dispute on an inheritance and on funds, Jesus tells this parable that really captures something that we need to consider, especially in, in a Western individualistic culture that we all live in. Because this is the reality of the end point of that, that, that in a, when we get to abundance, we don't often ask like, hey, how can I leverage what I have for good and what God has given me to, to give to those around me or to what's going on around me? And, and instead we ask, how much can I store up to make sure that I'm comfortable, that I'm secure? Now listen, it's not wrong to have money. It's not wrong to have a lot of money. And if God has blessed you with, with wealth, then it's not wrong to save money. In fact, it's wise to save money. And there's plenty of passages that tell us about the importance of being able to save and steward the resources God gives you well. But it is dangerous to our souls if that becomes the end goal. If our savings becomes the end goal. And our ability to, to give generously is a witness of God's kindness to us and the Spirit's work in us. Today, what I want to talk about is that, and what, I see, what we see in the text, is that Christians can easily tend toward a scarcity mindset. That's true with our money, that's true with our time, that's true with our lives, and we, we forget that there are many more passages that warn us against saving too much than not saving enough. So today, as we look at the text, we're going to see the difference between an abundance mindset and a scarcity mindset, and so this is what we read in 2 Corinthians Chapter 9, as Paul says, Now it is superfluous for me to write to you about the ministry of the saints, for I know your readiness, of which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia, saying that Achaia has been ready since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. But I am sending the brothers so that our boasting about you may not prove empty in this matter, so that you may be ready, as I said you would be. Otherwise, if some Macedonians come with me and find that you're not ready, we would be humiliated to say nothing of you for being so confident. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead of you and arrange in advance the gift you have promised so that it may be ready as a willing gift, not as an exaction. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he is distributed freely. He is given to the poor. His righteousness 
endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, so as a reminder, Paul is talking here to the Corinthian church. He was taking up a, a collection for the saints in Jerusalem. The people in the Jerusalem church were under severe persecution. They were struggling to just get by. And so Paul had made a promise that he would remember the, the Jerusalem church as he planted churches across the world. And so as he went, and now he was going back through the churches he had started in Galatia and through Macedonia and down into Achaia, where, where Corinth is, to take up this collection to bring back to Jerusalem. We saw last week that he had, uh, the, that Titus had been chosen by the churches. And so Paul was saying, this is how it's, who's going to carry it and how it's going to be accounted for. Um, but, it, but that all of this the entire idea of what Paul was doing, it comes back to a response to God's grace. And so I had asked us as a church this past, or last week to memorize a verse together. And um, I'd like us to say it together again now. And so it's 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. Um, do you guys remember the verse? I think, it, I think we have it to put on the screen. Yeah, there it is. All right. We said this over and over last week. If you're here, if you weren't, it's on the screen so you can pretend you memorized it. It's all good. All right, so read it with me. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. All right, everything we read in these two chapters assumes that foundation. It's God's grace to us. Now, grace is a gift that's given, a gift that's freely given. Something, grace is something that we cannot earn ourselves. And so this is, I think we get at times grace and mercy confused. Mercy, God's mercy to us is not giving us what we deserve. That he holds off on the penalty and the consequences for our sin and relents from his judgment on us because of the mercy that's extended through Christ. His grace to us is that he gives us something we don't deserve, something we can't earn. And so when, when we think about God's grace, we need to think in terms of, yes, our salvation, but, but our salvation is so much more than like a get-out-of-hell-free card. Like There's a promise that, God, that Christ is renewing and restoring all things that to his glory. There's a promise in Colossians 1 that... That if we have been, if we were once alienated in our minds, enemies of God, but through the cross of Christ, because he was crucified in our place for our sin, that we now have a guarantee of a share in the inheritance of the saints in the kingdom of light. And so there's hope for us that is more than just God's judgment being deflected, but, in, but it in the, includes and extends to God's grace given to us, and it's, it's an extension of God's infinite abundance to us. And the promise that we will dwell in the presence of God for eternity. And that comes into our lives now. And so everything that comes today about giving in abundance assumes the foundation of Christ's work for us. That he died in our place for our sin and was raised to life on the third day. Ascended to heaven where he rules and reigns and is returning to bring justice. If you don't have that foundation, this sermon's not going to make much sense. But we can see throughout Scripture the end point of pursuing everything that we want to desire and everything our hearts desire, too. This is what I love. The book of Ecclesiastes is brilliantly written. 
and it shows us somebody that had all of the wealth and all of everything you could ever imagine, and he was reflecting at the end of his life on how everything is a mist. It's chasing after the wind. And so, like what we just read from Jesus, that, that the man said in, in Luke chapter 12, it's, it's crazy to me the way that, it was, that Jesus stated this here, that the, the guy that Jesus is talking about in this parable says to himself, soul, you have, laid up ample, you, you have ample goods laid up for, for many years, so relax, eat, drink, and be merry. Do you, you ever hear people use that last part? Eat, drink, and be merry? I feel like we usually don't use it with its full context, <laughs> right? Like if we say to somebody, hey, welcome in, eat, drink, be merry. Well, the full context here is that somebody had become so satisfied in their soul, so confident in the work that they had done, what they had laid up for themselves, for the ample goods and wealth that they had accrued, that he was going to spend the rest of his life devoid of anything except self-indulgence. And it's his soul that's pleased. And so God comes to him and says, well, tonight your soul is required of you. And the things you've prepared, whose will they be? Who laid up, the one who has laid up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. But if we've experienced the abundance of God's grace in Christ... And Paul is saying to the Corinthian church the same things that come to us, saying, saying this grace overflows. If you've experienced God's abundance in your life, that's going to overflow through you in your life. And so what does it look like to live and to give ourselves in abundance? And again, this is related to money, but it's not exclusively money. This is about giving ourselves fully and first to the Lord. And so four characteristics of giving in abundance. First, give willingly. The whole first paragraph that we read in chapter 9 is, is Paul saying, again, details about the collection, saying, listen, I don't have to tell you about ministry for the saints. I know you're ready, but if you're not ready, you're going to completely humiliate me. <laughs> so you got to love Paul with a little bit of a guilt trip there, right? Like, like hey, don't do this so that I don't get humiliated to say, and, and, and say nothing of you. Like, you'd be humiliated too, but I, I urge the brothers to go ahead for the gift that you promised, but why? Look in verse 5 so that it may be ready as a willing gift and not as an exaction. And so he's saying to the, to the Corinthians, he says, hey, you need to follow through on this commitment you made. They'd made it about a year earlier, and he had told them in 1 Corinthians 16, the first day of the week when you're gathered together, set aside something for this so that it's, it, so that it's ready for us when we come for the collection. And so here he's saying, be ready, the time has come. And this is a ministry to the saints. This is an encouragement to the people of God that you're providing this way. And so be ready. They had made a commitment a year ago, and they were glad to do it. Now, this is hard for us, and I know as we've stepped into this series together, and we're talking about a call together to commit to something together. In the back of the series booklets, there's a commitment card. There's more of those available on the table back by the TV. And that's, for some of you, you've had a little bit of a reaction to the, the idea of a commitment card, understandably. It's been a long time since we've had that kind of a thing at Redemption Hill. We did it early on and when we were first at church plant where we had members say, because we didn't know how to build a budget, we were like, hey, can you help us and make a commitment? But it's not something we've done annually. 
And some of you have struggled with, are you ready to make that commitment? We, we understand, I understand. That's part of why we've extended what we're doing together, why we're looking toward March 5th as a call together for a church for all of us to make a commitment together. But this isn't an exaction. We're not going to like audit the membership roles. This is a call. We're calling the whole church to something together. Calling that all of us would give willingly out of the abundance of God's grace to us. And again, the whole context is important that God cares first about our hearts, not just about what the amount is. And that's why earlier on in chapter 8, Paul said to them, I don't mean that, that, you should, that others should be eased and you should be burdened. Each one, he says, needs to give according to what he has, not according to what he doesn't have. And so this, that context is important, but God cares about how our lives and giving ourselves to him is seen in our generosity according to what we have, not what we don't have. The word there that's used in, in the Greek for, for exaction is taking advantage of somebody out of greed. It's, it's essentially extortion or exaction, as the, as the translation says. And so I want you to hear me. There is, there is no like church tax here. And we've talked about this throughout the series that I don't think that the New Testament gives strict percentages or amounts and guidelines that way. Instead, the focus we've seen consistently in these chapters is that God is interested in having our hearts. And even as members, our members of our church commit together to give our time, our talents, and our treasures, and to do so sacrificially and joyfully and generously. And so a response to the grace of God is that we might give willingly. A scarcity mindset goes the other way. A scarcity mindset wants to hoard things and build bigger barns. It says that, you know, I don't know when the other shoe might drop. I don't know when things might go bad. And so I've got to hold as much as I can. And so this is why it's, it's fascinating to me that, that we can talk about almost anything in church. And Redemption Hill, we, if, if you're new around here, we have a tendency to kind of go head first into the things that are most difficult to understand. We walk through books of the Bible, which brings up uh, every topic. We can't avoid anything. And so, you know, we can come together as a church and we can address sex and sexuality. We can address relationships and hurt and fear and our idolatry of our souls and all these things. But, but when you talk about money, it gets a little uneasy. It might be an indication of what grips our hearts and what's most sacred to us. Frederick Buechner was reflecting on, on these themes and he said about money, he said, the paper it's printed on isn't worth a red cent. There was a time when you could take it to the bank and get gold or silver for it, but now all you'd get was, would be a blank stare. If the government declared that the leaves of, of the trees were, were money, so there would be enough for everybody, money would be worthless. It, only has, it has worth only if there is not enough for everybody. It has worth only because the government declares that it has worth and because people trust the government in that particular, even though every other particular, they wouldn't trust it around the corner. The value of money, like stocks and bonds, goes up and down for reasons that that not even the experts can explain, at moment, and at moments, nobody can predict. So you can be a millionaire one moment and a pauper the next without lifting a finger. Great fortunes can be made and lost completely on paper. There is more concrete reality in a baby's throwing its rattle out of the crib. 
There are people who use up their entire lives making money so that they can enjoy their lives that they have entirely used up. And Jesus says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Maybe the reason is not that the rich are so wicked that they're kept out of the place, but they're so out of touch with reality that they can't see it's a place worth getting into. What will last forever, though? Well, the glory of humanity is like grass, like flowers of the field. It withers and fades and is here one day and gone the next, but it's the word of the Lord that will stand forever. And so when, it, when Jesus makes the call to say that this is what it's like for those who have treasure for themselves and aren't rich toward God, in Matthew 6, when Jesus says, listen, store up your treasure in heaven where moth and rust don't destroy and thieves don't break in and steal, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What, 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 they, what Jesus is calling us to, what God calls us to, if we, are, if we have experienced the abundance of his grace in Christ, is to say we need to invest ourselves, including our finances, into things that are going to last and outlast us. To invest them into the advance of the kingdom of God, the, the work of the word of God, and into people that are around us because people have souls and are eternal creatures that will last forever. If we invest ourselves well, it will be felt for eternity. But everything in our world says, store it up. Get as much as you can, store it up, and keep it. Christian financial experts will do the same and find ways to get that into their message. But what do we read in Scripture? Empty your barns. How else are we supposed to see this? Now, I know it's important to be good stewards, but let's deal with Jesus' words before we jump to that. The fool in his parable is the one who stores it up, the one who looks wise to the world. A scarcity mindset builds bigger barns, but an abundance mindset willingly gives to God and to, and to God's work and to others. And so if God's grace is at work in us, we will give willingly to invest into the good of God's kingdom and, and into the good of others. A second characteristic is that we'll give generously. And so that's where it goes on in verse 6 to say the point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Now this verse taken out of context on its own absolutely can come off as, the, as a prosperity gospel, right? If we just rip this out of context, then we could say like, well, this is it. Sow the seed of your finances and it will come back to you a hundredfold. That's not necessarily what it's saying here. But when it's using language of sowing generously versus sowing sparingly, we have to understand the way that, that seed was sown in the ancient Near East. These are things I've read about. I have never lived on or near a farm. So um, those of you that have agricultural background will have a better idea of this. But they would plow the fields, and then, especially for the wheat fields, the, the sower would have a bag of seed, and he would scatter the seed across the fields. And there were specific instructions throughout the, the Old Testament that made it clear that they were not to reap all of their harvest. They weren't to, supposed to go all the way to the edges. They weren't supposed to go all the way to the corners when they were collecting the wheat later on. That, and, that any, and anything outside of the boundaries of their field, they certainly were to leave alone. And they were supposed to leave that section so that other people could come along and glean from the fields. What that means, and this is what we see in the book of Ruth, right? 
You go read the story of Ruth, and Naomi had lost everything. They, there was a famine in Bethlehem. The house of bread had no wheat, and they went away then. They went into another place, and when they were there, she lost her husband. She lost her sons, and she was left with daughters-in-law and said, you should go back to your father's household so you have a future because there's nothing for me. And Ruth clung to her and said, no, no, no. Where you go, I'm going to go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your God will be my God. And so Ruth went back with her to Bethlehem, and then, but, and then Naomi instructs her to go down to the field of a man named Boaz and to glean grain there. And so she was able to go down when these two women returned with nothing, with no prospects, with no real hope, and they were able to eat because Ruth was allowed to glean on the edges of the field. That story ends up immediately, within a couple of generations, leading to the line uh, that brought King David and ultimately points ahead to the line of Christ. So this is woven into the beauty of the gospel story in this generosity. And so when I read here that, that if you sow sparingly, you'll reap sparingly. If you sow bountifully, you'll reap bountifully. I think that background is important because what, what, is, what Paul is saying is, is you've got to be generous in the spread of that seed so that others are able to benefit from it as well. And it's not all kept to a limited area that is only for you. Every, we've talked about this, but every stat that you see, every study you see, will show that people with less income give more generously and intentionally when it's a percentage of what they have, and that generosity tends to go down as income rises. Why is that? I think because the more money we have, the harder it is to give, a, give it away, and the more money we have, the more likely we, that, it's dis, that we are disconnected from the problems and needs of others. You see, we often interpret what's happening in our lives materially as God's blessing or curse. But money is not an indicator of spiritual vitality or spiritual richness. We moralize it. And we do this in, in multiple ways, that, that we, can, we can moralize against those who have wealth and say that they must have cheated or lied or stolen to get there. Or we can moralize against those who don't have much and say this is clearly their failing, not realizing that God is the one that's responsible for, for what every one of us is given. But this is why, I mean, and so here it's saying, though, if you, what you have, be generous with it, be bountiful with it. And this is why the, 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 a tithe wasn't enough for the Pharisees. That wasn't, that wasn't intentional or generous for them. And so a scarcity mindset looks at our relationship with God and our relationship with money as a purely transactional thing. I'm going to give this expecting these outcomes. And I'll adjust what I invest of myself based on the outcomes. And so Jesus' call to us is greater. It's, it's saying that it has to flow from our hearts and within that, that biblical stewardship is handling our gifts, our time, our money with such intentionality that we're able to invest generally and intentionally in God's kingdom. So a scarcity mindset is transactional, but an abundance mindset is generous. That if God's grace is at work in us, then we'll give ourselves generously. And again, the nature of grace is it can't be repaid and expects no repayment. So when we look at, at things, and if we have a moralistic view toward our own salvation and we think that we have earned our way and tipped the scales so that God will accept us, then we will have that transactional relationship with God will extend into every other area of life. On the other hand, if we look at ourselves and say, I don't deserve anything, 
Every breath I take is a gift from God. Every morning that I get up is a gift from God, even when the morning doesn't feel like a gift when that alarm goes off. And so if we have a, a mindset that is, is shaped that way on the abundance of generosity that has come to us in the grace that has come to us through Christ, then, then it's, it, that will flow through us because grace is given for the good of the one who receives it, not the one who is giving it. And so we give willingly, we give generously, and to give joyfully. And so it goes on, verses 7 and 8, that each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. So here's another reminder that God is concerned most about our hearts. But the use of our resources shows something about our heart's response to God. And Paul is clear here, like, listen, he doesn't want this out of compulsion. He's not, this isn't an exaction. This isn't coming to the Corinthian church in manipulation. What he's saying, though, is this is something that they wanted to do, that they, were, that they, they wanted to be able to invest in. They wanted to be generous. And so now he's reminding them, don't be reluctant about this, but give joyfully. Don't, not under compulsion. And so, and so a scarcity mindset looks at the investment that we have, and it looks at it as duty. Sorry, my kids right now would be like, you said duty. <laughs> Where an abundance mindset looks at giving ourselves, investing ourselves, is an act of joy. And again, th let's stretch this way beyond money. I feel this, like, at home, right? There are times when I get home and I'm like, oh, man. Like, I got home, I traveled some this week for some meetings that were kind of intense. I got home... Thursday night late, and while I, was coming, while I was at the airport coming home, I learned that Alyssa, my wife, was driving to the Ikea in Norfolk, Virginia, because that was the only one that had stuff, and she wanted to rip out my closet in my bedroom this weekend. I had two choices when I got home. I could come home and out of duty say, all right, my wife asked me to do this. I'm going to do the task she would see right through me and does every time. So I had the flight home to be able to set my heart on joy. <laughs> but to be able to say, no, okay, there's a good thing here, to be able to, to make sure that I was checking my heart and my posture, receiving the gift that she had because this was my closet and, and it wasn't enough space and I just had stuff piled all over the bedroom. And so, uh, to, but to be able to understand that and give myself joyfully into the project. This is important when we talk about serving in a church and the idea of Sabbath in a church. Like Sabbath is resetting our patterns and rhythms of normal life so that we can set our eyes more fully on God through Christ. It's making sure that we have devoted time to be able to be renewed and restored in our souls toward Christ. And so Sabbath is not merely inactivity. And there's times when you just need a nap. That's great. Praise God for that. I mean, Devin is wearing a, a shirt that says, rest is holy, yes and amen. And what we are given through Christ is the ultimate Sabbath rest in the seventh day as it perpetuates and we sit and rest in God's presence. But we don't practice that very well. And even our investment into time that we spend together, gathered together as a church, can start to feel more like duty than like joy. 
And that means if, you, if, you don't, if you're not careful about where your heart's at and where your mind is set, then it's, it's, you have, then it's going to be reflected in, in the way that you engage in things. Because it can be life-giving to be a part of things, to be able to, to say, like, hey, I was a part of what happened and helped facilitate the worship of God's people and welcomed people in to be able to join together in worship today. Thank God for that opportunity. Now, it's not always going to feel like that. I mean, I probably shouldn't say this, but as your pastor, it's not every Sunday that I go, oh my goodness, I can't wait to get there and do this. 99% of them it is. <laughs> but, but when we act out of duty rather than out of joy, it gets reflected and it's going to drain us in the end. The, what you need to understand, though, that, that God's grace has abounded to us. And I love this, that, that why do we give, not reluctantly, not out of compulsion, but why do we give as a cheerful giver? Because God is able to make all grace abound to you. So in, in, in case the grace that's already been talked about, back in verse 9, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And now it's a, Paul is bringing this same concept of God's grace back around and saying, saying God is able to make all grace abound to you. Why? So that having all sufficiency... Having all things, in all things, at all times, you may abound in every good work. And so when, when we read about the harvest of, right, of, of what we gain in, and when we read about, about sowing generously and giving ourselves joyfully, the, the, the goal, what we receive is that God has the power to provide us with every kind of blessing in abundance that he will multiply his grace in us and to us, give us clarity on the sufficiency of Jesus for us, and it will overflow in generosity in all we do. Pastor Tony Evans said, one of the ways you know you're growing in faith is when you give with a glad heart in response to the goodness of God. Giving should be a joy, not a job. And so as a response to God's grace, we give willingly, we give generously, we give joyfully, and fourth, and finally, we give expectantly. God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely, he has given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. So again, I love this because it clarifies for us that this is an increase of the harvest of what? Righteousness. Again, we, this is a verse that you, we can rip out of context and say, oh, God is the one who supplies the seed for sowing, so he gives us everything we have. God is the one who provides bread for food. We, we know that God watches over the birds of the air, and we're more valuable than them. And, and so we need to, the one that, that supplies those things, he's going to multiply our seed for sowing and increase our harvest of our righteousness. But we need to give expectantly. Now, we've warned and warn, regularly warned about the, the, the problems of a prosperity gospel, a transactional relationship with God. 
saying that if I do X, then God must multiply his grace in my life, his blessings in my life, his miracles in my life. But we also need to be careful and beware of a poverty theology. That, and this is more for those of us, and this is my team, so theologically, so that's why I say us. For those of us that land in the more reformed streams theologically, we have a tendency to be so scared of falling off in the one ditch of prosperity theology that we just fall off into the other ditch of poverty theology. We don't think God is ever going to work. We have a theology that tells us we are nothing, we deserve nothing, everything given to us is grace. And so that, that should be freeing to what we're talking about, to give willingly and generously and joyfully, because if we deserve nothing and it's all of God's grace, then, then we're freed to, to give and live that way. But when it comes to expectantly, I feel like we walk around like with our heads down, kicking the dirt sometimes. Like if something goes well in our lives, that's evidence of God abandoning us, not, not chastening us. And poverty theology is, is a problem. God tells us here, be expectant. You'll re reap a harvest that if you, if you sow sparingly or reap sparingly, but if you sow bountifully, you'll reap bountifully. He's going to increase the harvest of your righteousness. He's going to make it so that you abound in every good work. There's going to be a result of your investment. Of your, if you give yourself first to the Lord, if you invest into God's work in your time and with your talent and with your treasure, there is a harvest that you can expect. And he quotes Psalm 112 here. When he says, when in, that, in that quotation, so I want to read Psalm 12 for you, because it's talking about a righteous man in the land. It says, praise the Lord, blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who delights greatly in his commandments. So that's, that's the, the man we're talking about in this psalm, the man who fears the Lord and who, delights greatly, in, or who greatly delights in his commandments. Well, who is he? Well, his offspring will be mighty in the land. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Wealth and riches are in his house, and his righteousness endures forever. So the man who, is, who fears the Lord and delights in his commandments is going to have a place to dwell and be rooted in the land that God has promised, and he's going to be established by God's work in righteousness. So it goes on then, light dawns in the darkness for the upright. He is gracious, merciful, and righteous. It is well with the man who deals generously and lends, who conducts his affairs with justice. For the righteous will never be moved. He will be remembered forever. He's not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. His heart is steady. He will not be afraid until he looks in triumph on his adversaries. He has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. His horn is exalted in honor. And the wicked man sees it and is angry. He gnashes his teeth and melts away. The desire of the wicked will perish. See, what, what God is, what, when Paul quotes this, that what we're seeing in Psalm 112 that he's importing into 2 Corinthians 9 is saying that when someone fears the Lord and delights in God's commandments, that God will root you in a place so that others can experience the blessing of his grace, in justice, in care, as you sow freely to give to the poor, to, to, and that your righteousness will characterize the place where you are. This is the calling on God's people wherever we find ourselves. 
So Redemption Hill, we find ourselves in D.C. That means that the result of God's grace to us should look like this, that it should look like what we read in Psalm 112, that God will root us in a place, that it will be our righteousness that we are known for. And like it says in Proverbs 11, when it goes well for the righteous, the city rejoices. Later on in in verses 24 and 25 in Proverbs, it says, The one who gives freely yet grows all the richer, another withholds that he should give and only suffers want. Whoever brings blessing will be enriched, and whoever waters himself will be watered. So we have this promise from God that we should be expectant. That if we do fear him, if we, if we love his word, if we love his commandments, if we are characterized by his righteousness, which has been given to us in Christ, that it's, it's going to overflow through us to those around us. A scarcity mindset doesn't give expectantly. A scarcity mindset stores things up to build our own kingdoms so that we can be so comfortable and secure. An abundance mindset joins Christ in building his church and his kingdom, living out the values and the realities of the kingdom to come and being a blessing to our city. And so as a church, that's what we're hoping for, praying for, working toward. And we believe that an increased rootedness in this place will really give us the opportunity for for ministry that, that we don't have access to now. But... We have to be careful not to get things upside down. We, this is why, it, as a church, we've said that our primary goal through the Dwell series is 100% engagement. We really mean that. Primary goal is that our hearts are captured together by the possibilities of what God can do. The secondary goal of the work of ministry and mission and the potential of a future dwelling place for our church that would be more full-time, we, we need to be careful not to get things upside down and only believe, you know, if we get that thing, then we can do the work God has called us to do. No, 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 no. We need to be who we say we are, do the work that God has called us to do, live it out now, not waiting for some time down the road. We have become and especially pre-COVID, we have been known as a church that loves our city. But we need to be the church that we're known to be, to love our city well and trust that whatever we invest of ourselves and our resources, that God is going to use that and increase the harvest of righteousness. And as a church, we've been able to be part of some incredible things. We've, we've seen churches planted. Our church has given more than 10% invested into mission and ministry of church planting over the, for every year over the last 11, 12 years. We, we've been a, a part of good work in our city, but, but, and we still have some of that going on, but, but coming out of and through this pandemic, we, we've got to get some things going again. When we talk about dwelling as an enduring and faithful presence, that's our hope, is we want to multiply the opportunities we have to bless our city, to bless other churches in our city and in cities across the world. But as individuals and as a church, that's not going to happen if we have a scarcity mindset. If we, if we have a scarcity mindset and we are, we're trying to hold things in for ourselves, then that's going to impact the ability we have as a church. Because every one of us are, are part of this body, if you call Redemption Hill home. 
And as a church, we have these same callings, that, that it takes an abundance mindset, that God's grace is given in abundance, and so let's not keep it to ourselves. That means that as a church, we give ourselves willingly and generously and joyfully and expectantly. And so, Redemption Hill, I'd love for you to join me in praying this way. That we would sow bountifully so we can reap bountifully. That we can give ourselves, not reluctantly or under compulsion, not out of duty, but out of delight, not a job, but joy. And that trust that God is able to make all grace abound to us so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, we may abound in every good work. Being a part of God's work and provision for others, distributing freely to the poor, righteousness that will endure forever, and trusting that God is the one who supplies the seed for sowing and the bread for food. He, he supplies for our needs, and he will increase the harvest of our righteousness together. That's what we're hoping for. That's what we're moving toward. Let's pray. Father, it's hard to trust you fully to provide for our needs because it means we have to let go of some of our control and we need to freely give ourselves to what you're doing. And Father, for those who feel like they're scrambling and working only out of duty or, or compulsion or responsibility, only giving out of duty or compulsion or responsibility, I pray that you, would, that you would move in their hearts today through your word that we just read and help them to see that's not what you want from us. You want our hearts Father, for those that haven't been investing much of themselves or their, what their capabilities or, or what their resources into the work of the church that they call home, I pray that you would move in their hearts to see this isn't a compulsion, this isn't an exaction, this is, this is a call together to invest into your work. Father, for every one of us, I pray that you would set our hearts to be reminded that all of this doesn't earn your grace, but is a response to it. That we really trust that Christ gave himself up. That by his poverty, we might become rich. Would you help our souls to rest in your grace? Give us the, the ability to believe, even in our unbelief. And we pray that you would use our, our lives and our church to your glory and the good of all people in this city. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.